Welcome to the Energy Trilemma, a podcast brought to you by BP. I'm Linda Yu, and throughout the series, I'll be speaking to some of the leading figures on the front line of the trilemma. Industry experts and global CEOs are looking to meet the challenge of energy that's reliable, affordable, and low carbon. In today's episode, we're focusing on shipping, a sector that's vital to the smooth operation of vast global supply chains. Joining me to discuss this is Soren Scow, CEO of Maersk, one of the largest container shipping line and vessel operators in the world. Thanks for having me, Linda. And Charles Haskell, the decarbonization program manager from shipping consultancy firm Lloyd's Register. Lloyd's Register serves clients in 182 countries and is committed to decarbonizing shipping. Hello, and thank you very much for having me here today. We've seen significant turmoil in global markets over the past few years, and the war in Ukraine has provoked new discussions around energy security and affordability due to the related impact on rising costs. So I'd like to ask you, Soren, given that in 2018, Maersk committed to be net zero across its own business and its value chain by 2040, how are these challenges impacting your ability to transition to net zero? Well, at the time, we didn't actually have any idea of how that was going to be achieved. We certainly did not have any business case for uh, decarbonization. We were very much in in doubt whether we could get our customers to join us on the journey. Now, four years later, we have actually adapted our target because we have moved it up from 2050 to 2040. More importantly, we have also set a 2030 target in line with one and a half degree pathway. So... Every decision we take today is with the targets we have already in 2030 in mind. So today we actually have uh, a technical pathway. We have uh, emerging customer demand for carbon neutral logistic services. So that's super helpful. And our attention have actually turned much more to the fuel pathway, how that we actually get the fuels that we need, and and also increasingly to the regulatory pathway. That's so fascinating. You've shifted your targets up by a decade, two decades, and now you have, I think, um, I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more. Now you have a number of uh, drivers to try and get you to that um, 2030 target, which is absolutely wonderful to hear. But before we do that, Charles... Uh, Similarly, um, can I just also ask you, what do you see the impact being for the sector? Do you think it could slow the process or is net zero the solution to the global challenges we're currently experiencing? I don't see it slowing the progress. Um, If anything, it will accelerate the progress. And and as Soren has articulated as well, the price is is a major differentiator between the fuels which we may use in the future compared to the fuels we're using today. And some of the analysis which Lloyd's Register and others have done has shown that this price differential could be two to four times more expensive for the fuel used in 2030, 2040 for for renewable fuels. So when the price of fuel goes up, it actually narrows this gap and begins to make more business sense to move across. But there's still a a sort of a gap to be made up. And and secondly, countries are beginning to shift their energy chains. In the short term, we're seeing countries shifting their energy from elsewhere, and it's shown the flexibility. And again, shipping is moving into that and being able to provide the solution for countries 
countries to move energy from one geographical area to another. And in the medium to long term, we're seeing investing more into renewable energy, not so much for their green credentials, but to give more energy security. And therefore, with this investment, we should see a further decrease in price of uh, the hydrogen-derived fuels, which will power tomorrow's shipping um, from the renewable sources. So that's on the, on the country level, and that's, that's all good. Um, I think the challenges, though, in the future will still remain. If we look at where the renewable energy will come from, it may be different geographical locations, but they are in different geographies where we may have conflicts in the future as well. So I think what it shows is we need to diversify our our energy chain and also diversify where we're getting the energy from and ensuring that energy security as well in the future. Rising prices raises this issue about affordability. So this is really a question for both of you. What can the shipping industry do to help during a time when the cost of living pressures are affecting so many households and the cost of products that they're buying has just risen so significantly? Soren, you first. The starting point will be that there will be uh, an extra cost. With that being said, I I think uh, certainly for container shipping, this would be quite a manageable situation. Before the war, before the oil price stopped, we were spending around $400 per container we ship on fuel. A doubling of that or even a tripling of that would make that $1,200, so an increase of $800, which, you know, percentage-wise is a lot. But obviously inside the container, there's a lot of product. And one of the examples I typically use is that in a 40-foot container, you have 8,000 pairs of sneakers. So an $800 increase in the cost for fuel is 10 cents per pair of sneakers. Uh, So if you look at this over a a 20-year horizon, I'm actually sure that that we will be able to manage the inflationary pressures, uh, especially if you believe that over time the the cost uh, difference will come down. And then, of course, The big question is also, what are we comparing with? Because the oil price has come up and it may stay up or it may even increase as the oil sector, if you're underinvested for quite a number of years now, uh, it seems like uh, there will not be an abundance of oil supply in the world. Charles, same question to you. Um, Do you see this um, price pressure on affordability? Is there anything the shipping industry can do? I think the the prime focus is to keep delivering the goods we need from our daily coffee, our weekly food shop, the monthly fuel which we're topping up in the car to our annual vaccinations. All of these are delivered by ships. Um, And when goods stop moving, prices also rise. But as we also saw through COVID, is under the most extreme pressure, shipping continued. And that was a very positive message. And it wasn't seen because they're not flying over above us in the sky. They're out of sight and out of mind. But it, it kept going. It was only when we had an incident such as the grounding of the Ever Given in the Suez Canal that people actually came to appreciate the shipping's role in our everyday lives. And as Soren says, shipping already delivers the lowest cost per mile from an emissions perspective. And to sort of put that into perspective, air freighters, 435 grams per tonne per kilometre. Uh, and a large container ship is now below three grams per tonne per kilometre. So shipping is is a low cost mechanism. Uh, and the main thing at the moment is that it keeps moving 
in order to ensure that prices don't rise. Wow, that's a massive differential. That's so important, I think, to highlight and to point out. And you're right. I think uh, shipping got a lot of uh, notice in, uh, when when the ship uh, got stuck in the Suez Canal. I think it brought some, I think in many ways, some welcome attention to the importance of this um, as a, a mode of transport. I'd be remiss not to bring in the other significant aspect, which is energy security, given the terrible conflict in Ukraine. What is the shipping industry's role in ensuring that energy is delivered to those that need it at the right time? So, Soren, why don't I ask you first, how does Maersk keep the world moving? Obviously, as a, as a container carrier, we're not directly involved in the movement of uh, fuels around the world, but we, we see uh, our role of, of keeping global supply chains running uh, under all uh, circumstances. And I think, frankly, we've been able to do a reasonable good job of that uh, during the pandemic. Then the world has kept moving despite all these these challenges. So I think it's shown that uh, global shipping is actually quite a resilient industry. Same question to you, Charles. What about the broader shipping industry's role in energy security? Shipping offers that flexibility. When we look at Russian exportation of gas to mainland Europe, this is mainly via pipeline. And in order to shift this, pipelines take a long time to build. Repurposing ships can uh, are a lot quicker. So already we've seen... Uh, differences in the in the LNG, liquefied natural gas um, transportation globally. But also we've seen um, sort of other areas stepping in. So for example, the German energy uh, company RWE, they signed a charter for two floating regasification and storage units at the beginning of May, because they didn't have the port infrastructure within the port to Im- import gas because it's currently coming from pipeline. But they've used repurposed ships with the infrastructure on board in order that they can just come along more alongside at the port and then allow that gas to be transferred from a ship to this other floating offshore platform and then into the distribution lines in Germany. Soren, I want to just ask you, what impact are you able to have as a large global company on the wider sector as you reduce your emissions? I think the most important thing uh, that we can do and uh, are doing is, is, is to take uh, a leading role in decarbonisation. Global shipping burns around 300 million tonnes of fuels every year, and we are 12 million tonnes of fuel out of that, so it's actually significant. We're part of the problem, but we also want to be part of the solution. And we've done quite a number of two things since 2018 in order to figure out what the pathway is. And we already offer a carbon neutral product to our customers, which is based on biofuel. It's, it's growing quite, quite rapidly uh, from, of course, uh, almost a, a zero base. But we're showing a way. We have started to invest. We have ordered 12 large container ships that can use green fuels. And we have pledged to that every ship that we order from now on will be able to run on green fuels. So uh, the next leg on our journey is really around getting the fuels. We have decided initially at least to focus ourselves on, on green methanol, so methanol that is produced from renewable power. And today there's around 30,000 tons of green methanol produced in the world. We need, just for the first 12 ships, around 500,000 tons a year. So what we're doing is sending a signal that we are there to buy green fuels. You know, before we started this, it was a bit of a chicken and egg situation. You know, there were no no green fuels uh, available because no ships use green fuels. And and there were no ships using green fuels because there were no fuels available. So with these steps, we we know we're creating a market for for green fuels. And we certainly hope that many other, uh, probably initially container carriers, will will follow uh, so that 
we can be helpful in developing a whole new industry to provide fuels for shipping. Really fascinating to hear about some of these technical aspects of how you're going to achieve um, your net zero goal. But just also tell me about how you work with the wider supply chain and all your stakeholders from customers to ship operators to accelerate this progress. And also, can it be done in a way that brings down costs for you too, Soren? What what we have done so far is we have signed uh, what is led of intense with uh, now six different companies for pro- providing uh, green methanol by 2025. Of course, those led of intense have to convert into, into real business uh, agreements, but we are confident that we can get there. So what we are doing is really saying, look, we are prepared to sign long-term off-take contracts that makes it possible for people to invest in, in green fuel production, and that's how we're going to get, get going. It's also how we, in the long run, can get costs down because we need to scale. We need to scale as fast as we possibly can. So we see that emerging customer demand, uh, and that will help us pay for the costs initially. A number of our customers uh, before COP26 uh, in Glasgow pledged that by 2040, they will only buy carbon neutral shipping services. And that's, of course, also helping drive this uh, market uh, forward. Yeah, that's hugely helpful. And that's really such an interesting way to think about, you know, the demand and the supply side. Your customers are demanding it and it is pushing forward the supply. So I think the fact that you as an industry actually have sight of of this end-to-end process is going to be very helpful for decarbonization. And actually, Charles, let me come to you on the kind of the sector generally. We've heard about Maersk. I mean, what is the transition pathway for the sector overall to reach net zero. And just also please mention what the role of biofuels um, is in all of this. I think it's good to look at previous energy transitions as well. So if we, if we look at shipping and uh, the movement from coal to oil, the, the reasons we moved from coal to oil, because we had a, a safer fuel, a more abundant fuel, it, it was becoming increasingly cheaper, um, it's easier to store and is more energy dense. So all of those led to an energy transition, and that energy transition took about 50 years from beginning to end. There's no other sort of easy substitute for oil, and this makes it sort of difficult in the decision-making about which sort of pathway to take, because there's a number of end goals which we may want to look at from um, a zero-carbon fuel, um, whether that be pure hydrogen, um, ammonia, methanol or or synthetic fuels, so fuels being generated from um, hydrogen created by electrolysis uh, and and then blending it with other particles. So it's a number of sort of different parts, and this is one of the reasons in in Lloyd's Register why we created the Zero Carbon Fuel Monitor, where we looked at all of those fuels across the whole supply chain. We we separated them as well uh, between technology readiness, investment readiness, and community readiness, because it is a myriad of options and we, and we need to address them all. If we look at ammonia, for example, if, the, if 30% of shipping switched to ammonia as a fuel, we would have to double the current production, which is about 180 million tonnes per year. Um, and most of that's used on the agricultural side uh, and is also not of, of, of a low carbon footprint. From It's sourced at the moment from natural gas or, or coal or, or oil. So we need a change of production there. But shipping's well-placed. One of the positive parts of shipping, if it's adopting um, something as a fuel, it's most likely carried it as a cargo in the past and therefore can take learnings within the industry. But from a biofuel perspective, um, biofuels um, 
are available. We need to see what the demand and supply is because the the scaling up of biofuel to meet shipping's challenge um, could constrain the issue. So it's not just about a technology solution. It's also about what the price of the fuel is going to be and the availability of that fuel. Yeah, now you hear quite a lot about the green premium and this 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 hope that non-fossil fuels in terms of price could begin to come down sufficiently. Can I just get you to elaborate um, on this transition pathway to net zero? Just in really simple terms, what are the key steps to get us from where we are today to net zero? Soren, just your views on that. We already today offer a product that is based on biofuel. It is uh, getting a lot of customer acceptance, even though there is a significant premium for our customers to pay for the product. But obviously, biofuel will not be able to scale all the way to net zero because there will be a lot of competition for biofuel and certainly from aviation, but also from other sectors. The next step for us is by 2025, we will have uh, the first uh, sets of ships that can run on on green uh, fuels. And by that, we mean a power to produce methanol. So we will use renewable power to to split water into the parts of uh, H2, so hydrogen and, and, and O, or the oxygen. We will use the hydrogen to, to make methanol, which is basically alcohol. And the ships will run on, uh, on this kind of uh, alcohol. And then we'll see towards the end of this decade, we also expect that ammonia produced in the same way could be a, a, a factor or a, a possibility. There are some safety issues that need to be dealt with, but we expect that those engineering problems will be solved. Uh, I don't think we're talking about developing new uh, technology, but solving engineering problems instead. Uh, so, so ammonia could play a big role in the, uh, in the 2030s. Charles, is there anything which is available today, um, which could meet all the criteria that you mentioned, which the shipping industry could be switching to? There are a number of energy measures, energy efficiency measures, which can be adopted. And and generally, as we see fuel prices increase, we see these um, technologies being adopted by the shipping industry. Um, The first and immediate one could moving slower, being more efficient. But as we'd see, if we need to shift X amount of cargo from A to B in a certain amount of time, if we're slow steaming, we would need more vessels on that route in order to deliver that cargo. But we also see changes to um, bulbous bows. We change the front of the vessel more um, hydrodynamic. Um, We could be adopting sails, air lubrications, uh, amongst others. So there's some hardware which can be adopted. But there's still improvements that can be made on on the um, operational side. If we reflect on the aviation industry, reduction in holding patterns um, by initiating just-in-time arrival have had savings of 10%. And we can see, we could see the same in shipping, particularly with port congestion as well. Um, so there's, there's other areas which can be adopted on, on operational changes. Um, and, and these changes could also have other benefits as well as um, greenhouse gas emission reductions. We could see less pollutants near coastal cities as ships slow steam further away from the ports. Another interesting area is also um, behavioural change and, and how we adopt this on vessels. And again, reflecting back to the aviation industry, um, Virgin Atlantic Airways, they adopted behavioural changes uh, a few years ago, and this saved $6 million in eight months. Um, And that's a fantastic saving. But this also cut 
24,000 tonnes of CO2 from the emissions perspective. So saving fuel um, is good for the company, but it's also good for the environment. Um, what did they do? Having spoken to some of the companies involved, it, w- it was about behavioural changes from the leadership down. So from the captain taxiing out to the runway, thinking about the approach to the airport, all these lots of little cumulative parts coming together from a from a human behavioural point, leading to savings. Hmm, I think so, and there might be uh, some uh, behavioural <laughs> um, behavioural uh, impact here for the shipping industry, perhaps to look at as well. Well, as we go through this transition, we should not forget the potential of energy efficiency. It's still there. Uh, in Maersk, we have uh, reduced the amount of fuel we use per container we ship by more than forty percent since two thousand and eight. Uh, and it means for us that we have been able to disconnect our business growth from our CO2 emissions growth. So we have grown our business by 50% in volume terms since 2008, but our CO2 emissions are the same as they were in 2008. And that is really energy efficiency. And I think there's still a lot to be achieved uh, there, as Charles also highlighted over the next uh, over this decade. So we should not forget energy efficiency as part of the solution. Absolutely. It's been such a fascinating discussion, but we are running out of time. So I'm just going to finish off by asking you both a question around um, government policy support. So Soren, you first. We've talked about all of the interesting things that you're doing as a company. We've talked about the broader sector. And I think this last discussion around really innovation, energy efficiency, even behavioral changes, they all have such an important role to play. But how do you see the role of government? Government, Soren, what policy support is required? So shipping has one uh, huge advantage compared to many other industries, and that is that it is uh, governed by a global body, IMO, under the United Nations. And whatever they decide in IMO is applied globally. That ensures a, a level playing field for all. The problem with IMO is, of course, it's the United Nations, so it do not really work at, at, at fast speeds. But if we can get something agreed in IMO, then then it it will be very good and implemented. I think the first thing governments or IMO needs to do is to continue to support energy efficiency by setting tougher and tougher targets. Uh, And that discussion is ongoing right now in in IMO. The second thing we need is a a net zero target for the the industry. Today, uh, the target for shipping is to reduce by half its emissions by 2050. In my book, that's not a very ambitious target. Uh, We need to get to a net zero target. Uh, Then the third thing, we need to set a price on carbon in order to, if you will, support the use of more expensive uh, green fuels. Uh, And hopefully IMO will be able to agree on that uh, during this decade and implement it towards the end of the decade. And then finally, I think at some point, Shipping has to have a ban on building new fossil fuel ships, just like uh, some countries are thinking about banning fossil fuel cars from 2035. At some point, we have to do the same in shipping in order to make sure that that we do not continue to compound the the problem. That's my little wish list. It's a great wish list. Um, Charles, final word to you. Um, How can uh, government policy best support the industry uh, to deliver net zero commitments? In terms of government, um, as we saw in COP26, 
Uh, we really saw the industry coming together. We saw industry push more than regulatory push. Um, as Soren said, you, we had the COZEV initiative of some very large market consumers coming together. And whilst the industry standard for from the International Maritime Organization is saying a 50% reduction by 2050, they were asking for a 100% reduction, but by 2040. Um, and, and it's fantastic to see the likes of Maersk stepping up to that challenge as well. The other part from the governments uh, during COP26 is they signed up to the Clydebank Declaration, which was um, all about enabling green corridors between countries and how to facilitate the land infrastructure and the shipping infrastructure. Um, and there we see the first movers um, going forwards. And it's to facilitate and deliver to those commitments they have made. I want to give a huge thanks to Soren Skow, CEO of Maersk, and Charles Haskell, Decarbonization Program Manager from Lloyd's Register. It's been absolutely wonderful to speak with you both. I think it's clear from our discussion that there's a real shift underway towards cleaner energy in the shipping industry. It was also really fascinating to hear about some of the different solutions and pathways we could use to get there. Thank you all for listening. I'm Linda Yu, the host of this podcast brought to you by BP. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.